Hello and welcome to Rupture Radio uh, and the latest edition of our At The Roots interview series. Um, it's Michael here. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined, first of all, by Paul Murphy. How's it going, Paul? I'm good. Thank you. I got my first vaccine today, so I momentarily was had a bad headache and was very sleepy, but I'm now back with the world. Excellent. And I'm delighted to say that our, our guest uh, for this interview is uh, Vincent Bevins. Uh, how's it going, Vincent? Very good. Uh, I got both vaccines, which was why I was allowed to come and start working again. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in Ukraine. I'm just, just starting to do some reporting for a new yeah. project. So um, it's it's good to be back in the uh, out in the world again. Yeah, I, I still am vaccine-less, but I think I can, I can register this week, I think, but, you know, getting there. Um, but yeah, so for, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Vincent Bevins um, is a, a former foreign correspondent who was based out of uh, Indonesia and, and Brazil, among some other places. Um, but most relevant for this podcast, he's the, the author of a book um, called uh, The Jakarta Method. Um, and basically, that this is a book about um, the network of uh, anti-communist massacres and coups and, and the, the role they played um, in the Cold War, f- f- focusing very specifically um, on, well, not just, but like the like titularly, I guess, on, on events um, in Indonesia during the, the 1960s. Um, so I, I'm conscious that some, some of our listeners may be aware of, of these events, but others won't at all. So uh, to begin things, just ask like a very broad question then, Vincent, um, and that's uh, what exactly is the Jakarta Method and, and how did you come to, to write a book about it? Uh, the Jakarta Method is the intentional mass murder of leftists or accused leftists, um, civilians in the Cold War, um, in, the, uh, in the construction of authoritarian capitalist regime. So this was something that takes its name from the 1965 mass murder of the Indonesian Communist Party, and um, many people associated with it indirectly. Um, This was a U.S.-backed massacre, which took the lives of approximately one million people. We don't have good numbers because this has been so successfully hidden by um, the regime that, that, that grew up in its place. Um, and after this um, this event, which I think is one of the most important turning points of the Cold War, other right-wing movements around the world, um, other U.S. allies, potential U.S. allies, anti-communist radicals, took inspiration from it and started using um, the word Jakarta um, to denote anti-communist violence and often to threaten the leftists in their own countries uh, to say, we're going to do to you what they did in, in, in Indonesia. And this did happen. So I found um, that throughout the Cold War, there was a, uh, 22 at least cases of countries allied with the United States carrying out the intentional mass murder uh, of leftist civilians. This is not including any of the wars in the Cold War. Um, and I came across this sort of accidentally, but I guess also it's sort of mm. what's supposed to happen when you're sent to cover um, a region as a foreign correspondent. I was in Brazil for for six years, and then I moved to Jakarta uh, in 2017 to cover all of Southeast Asia for the Washington Post. And that's kind of an impossible and insane job because, you know, that's 11 countries. But I really got to start, you know, I started at at home in Indonesia, and I was learning Indonesian and looking around um, that country. And I found that no matter what story I was doing or um, no matter where I looked, sort of lurking below the surface was this very explicitly um, hidden, uh, um, um, a story which was illegal to tell, but it was relevant to everything that I was doing. I found that you could not really tell any of the contemporary stories about Indonesia or really the the region without uh, 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 uncovering 
the legacy of this mass murder in 1965 in Indonesia. Um, and it really had been suppressed, uh, still is suppressed, uh, the, truth, the truth of what happened in Indonesia, at least, at least until now. So um, not long after I was there, I, I, I tried to put together, this is a book project. And when I was lucky enough that somebody bought this idea and you know gave me a little bit of money to start working on it, I decided that this is what I had to do full time. It was too big and I believe too important to do alongside uh, my job as a foreign correspondent. So I spent, you know, I spent years on it, um, but it, it kind of just popped out at me when I arrived in my new job. I mean, I, from my point of view, I think it's really valuable, important work that you've done. Um, I mean, I, as I, as you know, someone who's a Marxist, someone who had read a lot of stuff, I had an awareness about Suharto coming to power, about like the process around that, about the role of U.S. imperialism and stuff, which I think is, is, you know, beyond most people. But like, just on a basic level, what you describe in terms of, you know, the level of murder that took place. There's some really like horrifically graphic um, descriptions. Like at one stage, I think it's in relation to Bali. You, you write about that people couldn't not know that like five percent of the population had been killed because literally the rivers were like not moving. You know what I mean? The rivers were blocked because of the dead bodies. Um, and yet like, and yet it's wiped out in terms of the historical memory of Indonesia. You know what I mean? Such a level of killing and then it's wiped out both in Indonesia and then internationally. Yeah, no, that, I mean, there was, there was cases across Java, of like, you know, the entire, you know, the entire island of Java, one of the more uh, populous and important islands in, in uh, human civilization, like reeking with the stench of bodies. Like it was, something that everybody knew had happened but yeah when i came you know it was something that when i turned around even when i arrived in indonesia in my world the world of sort of like you know international journalists and the major english language media i didn't find that really anybody knew about it i mean i'm mm -hmm. not you know i'm not talking about like oh you're you know your uncle uh that you see at christmas like you know editors at major uh, mm -hmm. newspapers had only kind of a vague idea of what this was and um even of what indonesia is i think bizarrely i mean i point mm -hmm. this out briefly in the book but it's the fourth most populous country mm -hmm. by population in the world and like you could go up to people that could rattle off details about a lot of countries and people will have they'll, they'll like be like oh micronesia what is like this tiny island uh mm -hmm. they have no idea that this was really at the center of the anti-colonial movement in the middle half in the in the middle of the 20th century that this is still the world's um largest muslim majority country and then it was really um uh a, a pivotal um uh turn in 20th century history this 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 uh this this mass killing yeah i think just following on from that like talking about the fact that people like for for its size, people are relatively unfamiliar with in Indonesia as a country and its kind of centrality in the 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 anti-colonial movements of the fifties and the sixties. Um, so I kind of wanted to ask about that role that Indonesia played, or or or, or specifically about the concept of the third world, which had or at least appeared to have a much more positive connotation um, at that point in history um, than it did now. Um, and in particular, you describe the 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 Bandung conference uh, when um, um, Sukarno hosted many of the the, the world's leaders uh, who weren't 
aligned with 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 either side in the Cold War in particular. Um, so could could you talk a bit about that about that that kind of positive kind of example of like the the newly independent countries taking a positive step out out into the world, or at least that's how they perceived it at the time. Yeah, I think that's a really good place to start, and that's where I choose to sort of. I always find that that is a great starting point, whether in the book or describing all this, is at the end of World War II, the, the planet is divided into three worlds. There's the first world, the second world, and the third world. First world, um, the rich countries of the North Atlantic plus Japan and Australia, all of them either imperialist or formerly imperialist. Second world led from Moscow. Um, uh, and then the third world, which, as you, as you pointed out, has been sort of degraded in the English language, I think, by the racism of the speakers of the English language since mm-hmm. then. But at the time, the third world was not so much a place as an idea, as a movement, as a dream. Um, so, at, you know, as I said, the 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 in the first world, in the second world, the lines were pretty clear um, um, between what was now becoming to be starting to be the Cold War. Right. The United States knew that they were against communism. They were new. They were against everything that the second world was. We can talk about why that came to be, but it was. By 1948 or so, it was very clear. But totally misunderstood, underappreciated, was the vast majority of the world's people. Mm-hmm. You know, this is uh, two-thirds or 70% of, of, of the world's population that were either emerging from or still battling to emerge from uh, formal colonial control, um, usually European colonial control. And the third world movement did not denote that these were countries that were third-rate, um, but that this would be the third act of history. This would be this would be the, the third estate of the globe um, taking its rightful place alongside the first and second world. And um, they believed, and this was you know something that came across meeting so many of the people that were that lived through this moment. They believed that it was quite natural that since formal European colonization was ending, they would be able to reshape the rules of the global economy of the, of the global political system and take you know and and stand as equals with the white nations that had formerly controlled them um and indonesia was really at the center of this um sukarno the first president of indonesia um was perhaps its most eloquent uh, and famous uh, uh proponent um in 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 the first years after world war 2 one of the things that struck me in terms of, you can see in the book that um, kind of U.S. imperialism is grappling to, OK, how do we deal with this? And there's different wings in terms of more hawkish, more dovish kind of wings. Do you try and bring them in, etc.? cetera? Um, and one of the things that obviously the hawks like win out in a very definitive way, that's what's reflected in the Jakarta method. Um, but one of the things is like the whole way through both the hawks and the doves kind of misunderstand the whole thing um and the way the hawks misunderstand it is like they see communism everywhere um when like it's not what they're dealing with i mean it's also even true with to a certain degree in terms of castro and what what ends up happening in terms of cuba is that they see anyone breaking from the kind of washington consensus as being a communist or essentially a communist so like the the coup in brazil happens in 1964 and it's um, 
the name you, you'll tell me how to pronounce it I mean Django Goulart but that's fine yeah okay. that's the best way to say in English if I said you say in Portuguese it's yeah, yeah. Django Goulart yeah sure okay I really like Portuguese so <laughs> I'll try and say Django Goulart is like but like just say yeah Django Goulart is fine yeah okay Django Goulart um but um I mean something interesting so he, he's the he's like again seen in this way by the US US you know our art behind and play a key role in a coup to get rid of him but one of the things that i thought was interesting was that like again indicating that look these people weren't communists or marxists or whatever um i mean he had indicated privately that he would understand if the u.s bombed cuba at the time of the missile crisis that he backed the blockade of cuba etc like why did why did u.s imperialism and the thinkers of u.s imperialism misunderstand and react in the way that they did to this kind of movement that was emerging. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, you're, you're totally right that like the new, new agencies, the new, the men charged with a new task of overseeing sort of like uh U.S. empire, if you want to call it that, or U.S. hegemony, depending on your politics, really didn't know what they were doing when it came to the third world. I mean, even sympathetic um, biographers of the CIA, Mm-hmm. say, yeah, these guys didn't understand the global South through the third world, as they would have called it at the time at all. Um, and this was partially, this was partially because of sort of the Amer- the unique American experience, just like America is just such a name we're looking place, but it also was because of such a new, um, a new task for the United States, right? It was a young country. They didn't, they didn't have sort of centuries of international espionage, espionage like the British Empire did, like uh, the Russians had. They kind of threw the CIA together very quickly at the end of the 1940s. And the initial task was to take on the Soviet Union. And they like couldn't do it. They kept failing. They, they were trying mm-hmm. to infiltrate um, countries that were actually run by communists and they failed. Um, and so they turned to the global South and, and yeah, as you point out, there was kind of two moments uh, or two movements. Um, one was this initial uh, movement in the Truman administration that saw anti-colonial governments, which were not communist, but also left-leaning as acceptable, right? So in the first years of the cold war, it was seen as, tolerable to be neutral. Um, and almost every anti-colonial uh, movement in, in the middle of the 20th century, we often forget, especially in the United States, was going to be left-leaning in some way. I mean, socialism was almost identical with the anti-colonial struggle. Um, if you were trying to throw out the, the, the Europeans, you were socialist and vice versa. Um, but as we get into the 50s in the Eisenhower administration, this changes. Um, by 1953, with the first successful coup in Iran, the new administration, the Dulles brothers running foreign policy for the United States, neutrality now signified that you were an enemy. If you were, it was really, uh, 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 you're either with us or you're against us. And any country that that tried to stake out a position in the middle, and this is what the Third World Movement was really all about, being sort of in charge of their own destiny, not having to answer to either mm-hmm. Washington or Moscow, that got you marked for really extermination, whether political extermination or literal extermination in, in, in many cases. Yeah, just just on that, like specifically, you kind of p- 
pinpoint the kind of guiding doctrine that the the CIA at that point operated under as like something called modernization theory, um, which was basically, I guess, a stagist conception of history, um, which pointed towards the need for capitalist economic development um, before countries in the global south were were ready for democracy. And the implication of this was often that... um, uh, authoritarianism is essentially required uh, to to bring about that um, uh, d- development. Um, so how how was that kind of that doctrine disseminated down and I guess concretized in the in, in the form of the the atrocities and the the coups you describe in in, in the book? Yeah, it was really something that was it grew out of sort of academic. Uh, government partnerships in in the middle of the century. And it it was sort of, you know, uh, an easy way to understand this is like the the American answer to Marxism, right? Like they have like a schematic version of history. Countries pass through stages, except in this theory, the end stage is not communism. It's just like what a liberal thought America was like or should be like. Um, Yeah, so, so modernization theory sort of posited that there was like, backwards countries and then you have to eventually you're going to get to the shining future which is like being america um and yeah as you point out uh there that that there was sort of something missing there because there was in modernization through this idea that you have the, the this middle bit required a big push like it wouldn't happen on its own you really had to like get it through that middle bit and what was supplied often in practice for that big push was Militaries in the global south. So by the by the end of the 1950s, and, and as the Kennedy administration um, is ready to take over, um, it is sort of like has this academic sheen uh, applied to the idea that dictatorships are going to drag primitive countries into the bright, shining sort of future of hamburgers and drive-through, or sorry, drive-in uh, movie theaters. And this. This is particularly pernicious in the 60s, but I should, we should point out, you know, the CIA carries out coups in Iran, in Guatemala in 1953, 1954. Uh, they tried to topple Sukarno in 1955 and 1958, um, ultimately very unsuccessfully. And in all those times, like they don't really have a plan. Like it, all those fall apart. You know, if you look back from um, the the privileged position of 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 the president term, right? But by the 1960s, you really had a administration coming in, the Kennedy administration, that believed, you know, like um, we can push um, nations into the future, and and, and this is something that is not like uh, crude power politics. This is, you know, the best social scientists in 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 Washington D.C. Um, are, are behind us on this. And, and, and this um, was transmitted to Indonesia, I believe, in this moment between 1958 and 1964. So I mentioned that the CIA tried to topple um, Sukarno's left-leaning, non-communist, but uh, 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 energetically anti-imperialist um, government in 55 and 58. In 55, this took the form of a civil war that the CIA fomented and participated in. Now, after being caught bombing um, Indonesian islands and killing civilians, the CIA uh, had to change tactics. Right? They were they were they were clearly exposed. Uh, the Indonesian left and, and Indonesian general had 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 been um, 
proven right that they, that the United States was mm -hmm. trying to sort of impose a new type of colonial order on, on on Southeast Asia. It was already pretty clear over in Vietnam, but this is this really this this strategy didn't work. They had to change tactics, and what they did instead of directly taking on the Indonesian military was to bring thousands of them to Kansas in the United States for training and uh, often kind of academic training, and, and they they learned about you know, the American view of the world and the American view that the military could play an incredibly important role in pushing Indonesia or dragging Indonesia into the, the 20th century. Well, that, that's, yeah, that's a point we were going to ask, actually, is, is precisely that, like, that, um, I mean, it's really interesting part of the book that, I can't remember his name, I think it's Benny, is one of the guys yeah, you're talking yeah. to from Indonesia. He happens to be in university beside the, the Leavenworth school and then like hangs around with, um, you know, and goes out for drinks and stuff with people who are attending this. And then later on, obviously sees the impact of, of this, but like the role of that sort of school, um, that sort of army camp, um, into both in terms of Indonesia, but also in terms of Brazil, obviously you have the school of Americas that this becomes a very definite approach whereby they identify that they're kind of natural allies in all of these different countries. Um, what I think in the book you say, you know, the country's most reliably anti-communist force in both Indonesia and in Brazil is the armed forces. And they kind of decide we're going to go and develop our relationships there. And obviously, the same again happens in, in Cuba in 73, um, whereby it's the general, it's Pinochet, is the, the most reliable anti-communist force. In Chile, sorry. Um, how much of, of that is like 100% conscious? They know what they're doing. They know where it's going to end up. Um, a lot of it is not 100% conscious. A lot of it is, you know, done on the fly. And I think um, that's sort of the privilege when, that you have when you end up being the most powerful country on earth, when you when you emerge from World War II mm -hmm. and no one can really, uh, no one's allowed, to, no, there's no referee when you're the United States in the second half of the 20th century. I mean, the Soviet Union, we like to think of the Soviet Union as sort of in, an, in a binary relationship with the U.S. during the Cold War, but the United States was really far and away the most powerful. And so they were allowed to keep improvising and they tried things and they didn't work and they tried other things and they didn't work and they got to try new things. So sometimes you can see long-term planning that really comes to fruition. And sometimes you can see people uh, reacting on the ground or really just not even that many people, but they, these people make it clear to the military, well, this is what we want to happen. If you do it, it'll work out for you. And mm -hmm. that, that can be incredibly influential. Um, when you have the um, credible promise of aid from the richest country on earth, just as can be very powerful when you can present the credible threat that the United States might invade you if you don't get out of the way. This was the case of uh, Huckle Barbins in, in, in Guatemala in 1954. In Central America, it was kind of understood that if the United States really, really wanted you to go, you ultimately were gonna face the US Marines. So it was better to get out of the way um, before they came. So, so a bit of improvisation could go a long way with those credible threats behind you. Yeah, just br briefly on, on that, like speaking of like improvisation and like the kind of tactic of just what the US tactic at, at, that, at that early period almost seemed to be of like just throwing enough stuff at, at the wall eventually um, something will, will stick. I think like one of the few kind of very amusing part, parts of the book 
books is is um, just the story about the the CIA trying to create like a, a, a fake sex sex tape and in, in involving like a doppelganger of of, of Sukarno. Um, could you kind of tell that story just because I think it's 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 an amusing one. Yeah, I mean, like I said, so the year that um, it, that Indonesia threw the Bandung conference, which I didn't even mention when you asked about it the first time, which was really the moment that the the, the third world came into sort of formal structure um, as a as a global um, uh, cooperative movement of nations. The CIA starts to try to destroy this version of Indonesia. So the first thing they do is they bribe. Um, the conservative Muslim party, Masumi, hoping that it will do better in elections. This does not work. The Indonesian Communist Party continues to do better and better because they just are simply popular. So this, these two things really worry the CIA. The, the formalization of the Third World Movement and a popular Communist Party, which is unarmed and, and relatively moderate, at least to, to compared to what we think of a Communist Party, uh, think of as Communist Parties now. Um, just winning because people wanted to vote for them. So bribing, you know, funneling money to the opposition party, that's like always step one. That, that worked in Italy just after World War II. Um, that's the, you know, but that doesn't work. You sort of step up your game. Um, the CIA considered assassinating Sukarno. This came out in the 1975 Church Committee. Um, they did, as I said, uh, foment and participate in a civil war, killing civilians. But they also had this idea that they could create a video and leak it, which would demonstrate two things. One, that Sukarno was a bad Muslim man and a womanizer and sleeping around. And two, that he was somehow in, somehow controlled by the KGB. So, like, I don't know how much of this, like, talk of, like, compromat and, like, uh, uh, you know, Russian control uh, you got when we were going through our Russiagate stuff in 2017 in the United States. But it was basically this idea. They were going to make a porn. Um, apparently there wasn't like explicit, uh, like actual sex, but it looked like they were having sex. They hired an actor from uh, Los Angeles. They couldn't get an Asian. So they got a Mexican American and put him in a bald wig. They figured that would be close enough. They also wanted to like humiliate him. This is again, there's like the CIA's, it's very American in, in, in a way that they don't understand the way that the rest of the world works. Like they were obsessed with like making him look weak and like not a real man. Just and this comes back with Fidel Castro in the 60s when they think, oh, if we make his beard fall out, those Cubans will stop respecting him. Mm -hmm. So anyways, they make this film in L.A. Bing Crosby produces it uh, along with his brother Larry, because this, you know, and this is the 50s. This is before the CIA is known as, you know this shady organization if they came to you and asked for help you would often just do it and they produced the tape they 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 there was a blonde woman and they were going to release it uh um to destroy the reputation of really the founding father of, of the nation like it was you know there was genuine affection for this man in indonesia which they wanted to destroy now they didn't end up using this thing because one it wasn't very good i think i think some people sort of pointed out that doesn't really look like him <laughs> And two, they found out, actually, everyone in Indonesia knows that Sukarno sleeps around. And, like, mm -hmm. they're not American. They mm -hmm. have a different view of these things. Like, it's not going to be a sex scandal in the way that it might be in Washington, D.C. But, um, yeah, that was one of the more absurd, um, you know, they were trying out all kinds of stuff in the 50s and early 60s. And um, 
they just kept trying, you know, and uh, and it's like really funny, but also not at the same time, because they were trying to destroy the national pride in the leader of the anti-colonial struggle mm -hmm. that had liberated Indonesians for hun from hundreds of years of slavery. Mm -hmm. So like it really is a kind of like a group of like frat boys from the, the best universities in the United States trying to outdo each other, trying to prove to their bosses that they're good at fighting communism, but playing with entire nations. And when they screw up, sometimes an entire country is wrecked for generations and they just move on um, to the next one. Yeah, I mean, then that's that's like, that's kind of the, you know, the seedy side of the kind of cultural activities of US imperialism, like... Um, the CIA front is quoting from your, your book called The Congress for Cultural Freedom, which funded literary magazines and fine arts around the world, doing the kind of much nicer side of the like fake porn film involving um, Sukarno. And, and that's like, you know, you have the hard power of the military and the fact that they're getting close to the, these militaries in all these different countries that they consider not fully on board with their project, but then also the soft power they're trying to have influence and kind of the role of narrative. I mean, one of the things that I thought was interesting and I'd be interested in exploring a little bit further is like this relationship, which comes in kind of the back and forth relationships between developments in Brazil and Indonesia is a striking thing. And this, this people that you know from Indonesia who moved to Brazil and then see the thing, you know, the references to Jakarta, etc. It's it's striking. Um, and one of the things, I don't know, I think in the book you kind of say you don't really get to the bottom of it, is the like foundational legend of the armed forces in Brazil of the Intentona Communista, which is like a basically propaganda about an attempted communist coup, which is used in 1935, and then for the right wing to establish their power, and the kind of parallels between that and, again, the effectively made-up propaganda around, um, around supposedly the, the women's movement connected to the Communist Party in Indonesia, you know, uh, slicing off the genitals of the army and so on in an attempted communist coup. Things that don't have foundations in reality, but have very strong parallels with each other, which suggests that that is unlikely to be an accident. It's kind of really sinister, but also interesting. Um, yeah, like, absolutely. And without trying to sort of trace all of that now, because it is quite um, intricate, what I'll say is that we especially in the U.S., are very used to this idea that there was an international communist conspiracy and they were, you know, they were agents acting in coordination around the globe. And what we don't understand is that this was as true, if not more true, for anti-communist forces, which, if you know, again, were more powerful. You know, mm -hmm. they had the, the more powerful country on their side. They ended up, I think, kind of winning the Cold War, shaping um, the vast majority of the global south. So these groups, the various anti-communist internationals cooperated either directly with each other or through the United States over decades. And what this meant is that they sort of accumulated a body of knowledge of things that work. Mm. And... You would try something here and you would try something there. And when something worked, when a certain legend worked really well in Brazil, mm -hmm. people in the United States were going to know about it and people in Asia were going to know about it. And there's a lot of evidence that I find in the book 
uh, that I find and then put in the book that um, these these trips, these uh, tricks and trips, uh, tips and tricks were traded throughout the 20th century very effectively, right? So something that was used here would soon after be used over here. And you accumulate this sort of war chest of, of, of sort of plays that can be um, put into action when, when, when necessary. And um, sort of maybe the most obvious one is that of disappearances, right? So the people in Indonesia in 1965 that were, that were murdered were not just murdered. They were mm -hmm. murdered in such a way that their families didn't know that that had happened, mm -hmm. right? Um, now, in Latin America, this is an incredibly um, familiar phenomenon. Uh, uh, um, these are known as the desaparecidos. This is, a, this is something that everybody understands. But historians of uh, Asia believe that the first time that intentional disappearances were used as a, a tactic of state repression um, was 1965 in Indonesia. And the first time this happens in Latin America is 1966 in Guatemala and Venezuela. And you can see U.S. officials move from that region to that region at exactly that time. Um, and so it's not only tactics of, of physical violence and terror, as you, as you, uh, uh, sorry, that, that is, are traded, but also, as you point out, like the types of stories and the types of lies that you can tell in the moment of destabilization before a regime change that are also traded. So, so I think there's real, there's real, there's, there's a lot of reason to believe that mm -hmm. certain scripts were run in multiple locations with certain myths that worked quite well. Um, and the one in Indonesia, 1965, um, cons um, consisted of this, bizarre story of a communist witch sexual tantric witchcraft torture session mm -hmm. that took place um in some dark evil communist lair and um um consisted of the communist women's movement cutting off the genitals of uh, indonesian military heroes that were trying to defend the country now all of this um, has no basis in reality, mm -hmm. but they came up with this very good story very quickly. And a lot suggests to me that they got it from somewhere else. And people that know this um, chapter in history even better than me sort of think they maybe know who came up with it, who from British intelligence might have been involved. But um, yeah, that's one thing that I want people to take away from the book or just discussions like this. The, the global right was more organized mm -hmm. in many ways than the global global left and and it, like the things that they did were just so awful that we don't really like to talk about them so much including the people that, that carried them out or that the regimes that inherited uh, their legacies yeah one thing i just wanted to kind of push you on a bit further there which you're you were alluding to a, a lot in 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 the last an answer it essentially concerns like i guess the brutal success of of these methods like how how successful and organized um they were both in terms of like if you're comparing from like the the, the 60s onwards like no, no no matter your politics if you're comparing the death tolls of like an anti-communism to the death tolls of like in in, in the in, in the soviet union or in the eastern bloc it is just like a different ball game in terms of the amount of people killed by anti-communism. You're talking up to one million in 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 Indonesia alone. Um, but 
what what you say is is that these killings um were crucial basically in 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 the US's ultimate victory in the cold war and are, are crucial to understanding why the world is um the way it is now um so i i, I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on how 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 did it contribute to that victory and and, and how does it contribute to the, the makeup of, of of the world now right i know that's a really good uh, question so if you if you think of the cold war as a binary conflict between the united states and the soviet union uh which i think is not the way you should think about it but if you do then these interventions in the global south don't matter too much because what eventually happens in the end is that the soviet union falls apart because it kind of accidentally commits suicide um but to consider the cold war as a binary conflict between the united states uh and the soviet union is to neglect the vast majority of humanity it's to make the same mistake that the the people back in in the late 1940s did when they did, were completely ignorant of the global south um if we view all human lives on the planet as equal uh, the Cold War was much more about a war between the first and the third world than between the first and the second. Um, I think an easy way to characterize it is as the period in which uh, formal decolonization leads to another global system led by the United States. And this emerges as, out of a series of conflicts involving the United States or its proxies or um, places where the United States is um, making its influence felt to shape the system that ultimately uh, we inhabit now. And one of the biggest threats to this nascent US-led global order was the third world movement, the, the left-leaning, if not communists, and often not communist, movements in the global south that wanted to reshape the rules of the global economy. And so speaking now just particularly of Indonesia, in, in the beginning of the 1960s, um, U.S. foreign policy officials um, um, agreed. Um, um, it was it was you know it was no, no subject of debate that Indonesia was a far more important part of the Cold War than Vietnam. Um, mm. Vietnam was nothing compared to Indonesia. This was you know as I said the fourth largest country in the world by population. This is a man Sukarno who is charismatic um, and uh, seen as a legitimate leader in his in his country and around the world. That is that is really at the forefront of this very vocal, sometimes cantankerous um, effort to reshape the rules of the global economy. Um, and this wasn't all planned in a lab somewhere. They didn't know that it was going to work out exactly this way. But the, the mass murder that ends up removing Sukarno from power and in, in, in installing uh, Suharto you know, cuts the head off this leader of the, of, of, of the, the third world movement. Indonesia, like so many other countries in the global south during the Cold War, become becomes um, a country governed by the military, uh, aligned close with the United States, and committed to a type of violently authoritarian capitalism, which is incredibly familiar to much of the world um, to this day. And um, you know, there, you know, in in the book, I trace just sort of one this one particular tactic. I, I trace the intentional mass murder of civilians. And this proliferates out from Jakarta uh, after 1965. Um, I don't want to go through every country, but you know, it goes, it, it hops from Indonesia to South America, mm -hmm. 
you know, Chile, Brazil, and then goes into, you know, expands into Operation Condor, which is active throughout South America, and then hops up to uh, Central America, where hundreds of thousands are killed in, in, in Guatemala uh, uh, and El Salvador. But it is really this, um, this wide set of conflicts which shapes what formal decolonization ultimately ends up being. Um, someone like Sukarno would have called the current global order a neo-colonial one. Um, but whatever it is, it is certainly different than what Indonesians in the 50s and 60s thought the world was going to be like when they kicked out the Dutch. Yeah, that's a, uh, a bleak um, but true uh, description. And, and that's what comes across in the book, you know? Um, is, is you make a very compelling case about um, the role of this systematic mass murder of civilians uh, in shaping the the kind of world that we have today. And you know, no surprise when you look around the world today and you look at all the authoritarian regimes that you have and backed up by various imperialist powers, um, that such a world would result from such kind of um, tactics and stuff. The, the one other question, um, and this might be uh, as 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 good a place um, as any really to to, to end it, um, is really kind of the the effect um, that this what happened in Indonesia, the the destruction of the of the PKI, which was the third largest communist party in the world um, up until that point, other than um, the the Soviet Union and the the Chinese communist parties, obviously, um, the effect that had on on other kind of communist movements both in, in that part of the world um, and across the world uh, in, gen in, in general because one, one of the points I think you make in the book is that it pushed a lot of um, communist parties and communist movements away from kind of pursuing a more kind of I guess parliamentary or, or peaceful road um, so I was just wondering could, could, could you talk about the effect that this, these massacres had on the rest of the, of the global communist movement in that way Let me fire in a supplementary before you, you start on that because I also it was the thing in the book I read and I thought, yeah, okay. Um, like at a certain stage, Mao is advising the PKI that like, you know, you need to get ready for like some serious shit might happen from the military. You need to get ready for this. And then they don't get ready for it and they pay the price for it. So the automatic conclusion is, oh, okay. Kind of the Maoists were right. The guerrillas were right. That's the, but it also seems to me that like there's a road not taken in terms of there is an alternative thing apart from like being a guerrillaist or being committed to like peaceful parliamentary transition to socialism, which is like jump mass revolutionary organization in the cities, including in the countryside. But it doesn't, you, you know what I mean? The PKI could have had mass support, but could have actually not been, um, could have been more prepared. Do you know what I mean? Could, could have like understood the role that the military is likely to play, etc. But instead, things become polarized in that way, whereby the alternative is pick up your weapons, go into the countryside, and which also has its problems. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> As we very well know. Um, no, I'm so really glad Michael pointed out that it was the third largest uh, communist party in the world, because uh, I forgot to say that. But it was it was the largest unarmed communist party in the world. So number one and number two, Soviet Union and China had armies, right? Like they had they were running states. They had state power. Yeah. Yeah. And so the PKI, which was the oldest communist party in Asia, was founded in 1914 before the Bolshevik Revolution. It was very much like an old school um, Marxist party that really believed in the transition to capitalism before you would ever even think about making a, a push for socialism. Um, 
by the 50s and 60s was a was totally committed to electoral um uh, uh um success and it makes a lot of sense because the, it was working like uh, as the cia and mi6 point out uh as richard nixon says in, in documents we now have access to the pki would have won an election they would have got first place and all of the western powers knew this um so they thought that they didn't have to take any lessons from mao or 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 uh khrushchev or version of no no we have a lot of support and um we're going to be able to to um to take power our own way. We have, you know, we have mass demonstrations. We have the, we have the ear of the president by the end. Sukarno was very um, open to listening to them and reproducing their rhetoric at times. Mm-hmm. But as you point out, Mao did not trust this. Mao going back to 1927 had memories of when the nationalists just turned on the communists and massacred them. Um, and Aidit, the, the leader of the Communist Party of Indonesia, said, no, 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 we're fine. We're, we're part of this, you know, great patriotic revolution. We're, we're friends with the military. They really didn't see this coming. And um, to answer the first part of the question, when the largest unarmed socialist party, I think, I believe in history, was massacred, stabbed, thrown into rivers, tied up, drowned, um, left rotting across the archipelago of Indonesia, Everybody else in the Cold War noticed. We've forgotten about it, but everybody else knew what had happened and, and, and drew their conclusions. As we already discussed, right-wing movements decided, well, I can do this and I can get away with it and the United States will help me. Um, less left-wing movements often came to the conclusion we need to radicalize. We need to you know, run for the hills. We need to become guerrillas. We need to become militantly self-defensive or else this could happen to us. And and Mao is one, I mean, Mao obviously, of course, had his own uh, approach to revolution, but um, in the Cultural Revolution, which starts in 1967, um, rhetoric about the Indonesian uh, tragedy becomes prominent. Um, Pol Pot, who, again, was already, already going to have his own very, uh, to put it very generously, sort of uh, uh, unorthodox approach to revolution. He, this proves to him that he, he must be violent. This, we, we can never take the, the moderate path. And then in Latin America, you have splits up and down the continent. You have, mm-hmm. you have fights, you have conversations. Some people saying, well, no, this, this proves that we need to be, take the Guevara line, you know, um, who we should remember decided to create the Guevara line because he was president in 1950, or sorry, he was present in Guatemala in 1954 when the coup was carried out and came to the conclusion that he needed to be more militant um, when he saw what happened to Arbenz and the left and in, in, in after that CIA coup. So you had a lot of people taking uh, um, this lesson that you need to radicalize. And the question of this third, this third path, I mean, what what you what I was thinking when you started to say that is like, well, the obvious and great third path would be if the United States just didn't intervene in democracy in Indonesia in the first place. And then you would have had a unarmed and relatively moderate Communist Party getting 30, 40 percent of the vote, probably forming a coalition with some centrist party. You might have something like, you know, France, you know, you know, in, in the second half of the 20th century or something, you know, or maybe something like we had never we have never seen on on uh, uh, on the surface of the earth. Um, but yeah, then, then there's the, 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 there's a a document like a self-critical it's called, yeah, the, you know, sub the self-crit basically published by some Maoists, Maoist 
survivors of the PKI that went to China, and they basically come to the conclusion that Mao was right. Like, ah, oh, you got to just be mm-hmm. violent. But you point to an interesting uh, uh, alternative of just like actually having your organization be fully present everywhere and not being uh, unarmed and unprepared for um, uh, a military onslaught because they really had no mechanism for fighting back. Like mm-hmm. mo- many of the people that I, that I interviewed that were taken to prisons and then had their friends killed just went in to, to prison. They thought they were just going to give yeah. an interview. They thought, Oh, this is no big deal. I'm going to, you know, whatever. I, I have nothing to do with this stuff they're talking about in Jakarta with this women thing that didn't even happen, yeah. but I certainly don't know what that is. Um, there was absolutely no mechanism to sort of activate the cadres in the countryside and say, don't, you know, don't go into prison, let alone rise up and, and organize some kind of resistance. So, um, yeah, something like this can only be effective if the victims are not prepared for it, um, which is perhaps both tragic and offers a little bit of hope if, 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 if that means that the lesson can be learned to, to always be um, conscious of who's around you and who, who is unwilling to tolerate your existence. Mm-hmm. And how brutal and how far they'll go to stop it. And I think that's that's still true today. I mean, there's no question about it. Like, um, you know, anyway, <laughs> you could talk all night about many examples of that. Well, yeah, I think that's the thing we uh, like, especially in the English speaking world, we under uh, we, we don't appreciate like the importance of counter revolution and like sort of top down mm-hmm. violence. We we all know about how things can go wrong when a revolution, you know, gets overheated. But and when elites feel. Truly threatened. History teaches us that they're willing to do quite quite awful things to hold on to uh, uh, their privileges. Yep. Um, but yeah, that um, that's I think as good a place as 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 any to to end it. Really, um, just to 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 close out the. Vincent's book is called The Jakarta Method. Uh, the paperback was out quite recently, if I'm correct. Yeah, last couple of months came out yeah. in, the, in yeah, printed in London, or would arrive from yeah. Great, um, and we we can throw a link to that into into the show notes then. Um, and just... everyone should read it, like genuinely. It's it's very 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 good, and it's and it's actually easy short read. It's actually not like it's not some massive academic tome. It's like quite accessible, interweaves kind of personal political. Um, so yeah, genuinely excellent book. Yeah, no, and I, th- I think it's something you'll you'll get a lot from it if you don't know anything about the subject, but you'll also get a lot from it if you are relatively familiar with 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 the subject as well. So yeah, very very much recommended. Um, well then, I guess all that remains to do is uh, to th- first of all thank thank Paul, and um, then also thank our our, our guest uh, Vincent. Um, thanks very much for 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 appearing uh, on the show, um, and yeah, we we really appreciated you giving us our time. Oh, no, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.